you would, let's open up to the book of Romans in chapter 12. Chapter 12. This morning we come to verse 10. Romans 12 and verse 10. When Jesus walked this earth, he lived as a living sacrifice to his father. Every part of his life was devoted to his father. He said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John six thirty eight. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 14, 31. Christ's words were an expression of his love for his Father. He said, I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given himself, has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And of course, Jesus' deeds expressed his love for his father. We see this most pointedly when Jesus goes to the cross saying to his father, not as I will, but as you will. This is our savior, church. This is the one who calls us to follow in his footsteps. Jesus lived in love towards his father. He was a living sacrifice, spending every day of his 30 odd years for God. And even now, as the risen, ascended, all powerful Lord Jesus, he fulfills his role as our mediator and our redeemer, not firstly out of his love for us, but firstly out of his great love for his father. Of course, you and I have a reason to serve and love the Father that Jesus doesn't even have. We are recipients of God's mercy. Here is a way in which we are different from our Lord. Our Lord has never needed to receive any mercy whatsoever. Jesus is a giver of mercy, but we are receivers of mercy. We sit in this room as those who have had our sins forgiven. If you're a Christian, your sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. When Christ was fulfilling his father's will on earth, the father's will was a plan to save us. Through Jesus, the father secured our eternal salvation. He secured an eternal relationship with him. A relationship of inestimable joy and peace for us. We have every reason in the world to love our God. We have reason, every reason in the world to want to be living sacrifices. Every day being laid down to His honor. How can I glorify you today, Father? Because you've been so good to me. Don't miss this. When Romans 12, 1 tells us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, that's the umbrella over everything we're studying. That command includes every part of who we are. 
Every part of you is to be a living sacrifice. And that includes your emotions. Your emotions are to be submitted to God. Yes, God teaches us and instructs us concerning our actions and our words and our thoughts. But God goes further. God commands your emotions. And so we're called to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Philippians 4 verse 4. We're commanded to be thankful. Colossians 3.15 Thankfulness at its root is a feeling, an inward sense of gratitude. Hebrews 13 verse 5 commands you to be content. It's an emotion. Contentment is a feeling. It's an emotion that you're to have. We're commanded to mourn with those who are mourning, to be brokenhearted over sins, To be humble in our hearts before God. To have hope in His promises. To praise the Lord sincerely with joy from our hearts for the salvation He gives. In other words, part of living the Christian life. And part of giving ourselves to God every day is living sacrifices. is, Is submitting our emotions to Him. Giving our emotions to God. That's tricky, isn't it? If God tells me to give an offering, I'd write the check and I put it in the offering plate. But when he says in 2 Corinthians 8 to give generously out of an abundance of joy, what if I'm not feeling joy? How do I bring my emotions into obedience to God? Because our emotions aren't like a light switch. You can't just tell yourself to be joyful and make it happen. This is a gradual work. Ever since the fall of man, our emotions have been like unruly children. And it's only through time and instruction and much discipline that you can begin to discipline your emotions, train your emotions, uh, begin to see some change. And ultimately, it is the Spirit of God who is at work in us and through us to bring our emotions into greater and greater obedience to God. It's totally worth it. The blessings of properly ordered emotions are wonderful. Giving the offering, even when you aren't particularly feeling generous, is still a good thing. We should always do what God has commanded, even when our emotions aren't what they ought to be. But how much better when you can give from a heart of joy? Visiting a shut-in in our church, even out of a sense of duty or obligation, is still a good thing. But how much better when you're visiting that person because you really do feel love for them, compassion for them, an eagerness to bless them and be blessed by them. To put it bluntly, properly ordered emotions make the Christian life far more joyful. And properly ordered emotions make the Christian life, in some ways, much easier to live. Obedience to God is far easier when your emotions are in the right state. When they're not, every act of obedience seems like another inward battle. 
When our emotions are not what they ought to be, even the simplest acts of obedience become hard because we don't feel it, because we don't want to, because there's turmoil inside of us. Why all this talk about emotions? Well, it's because of our verse, Romans 12, verse 10. We have here another spirit-inspired command teaching us how to live a life of worship to God. This command, like the others, speaks to us about our life together in this local church. And it says that we are to love one another with brotherly affection. Now, some weeks ago, we studied the beginning of verse 9 and its teaching on Christian love. And we saw there that Paul used the word agape. He called us to agape love, Christian love, a kind of love that is divine and supernatural and sacrificial and unconditional. And really, that that command to love with agape love is the chief command in this whole list of commands. All these other commands are an expression of agape love. And so we spend a lot of time unpacking what agape love looks like. But within that command, we have this one. And it's a different word. In fact, Paul uses two key compound words to get his point across. And one of them you know. He uses the Greek word Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Philadelphia brings together phileo, friendship love, with the word Delphi, meaning brotherly. So he uses this this idea of brotherly friendship love. And when you use them together, it becomes stronger and more intimate. Familial love. Like the love you have within a family. The other word that Paul uses is kind of funny sounding. It's philostorgoi. Everybody say philostorgoi. Brings together phileo again. Friendship love. But this time it's that word storge. Storge is that sentimental love. Uh, we said that it's kind of like the warm feelings when you have when you sit by a fireplace at Christmas time, sipping your hot cocoa, and you have that, that storge, right? Or if you are comfortable and happy, you just have that moment where you stop and you just look around you and you count your blessings and suddenly your heart fills with warmth. That's storge. Um, I said it's like when I drive by the house that I grew up in after I haven't seen it for many years. And suddenly all those memories rush back. And you have that sentimental moment. Anybody else would drive by that house and it would mean nothing. But for you, there's, there's that warmth, there's that feeling, there's that, that storge. So when phileo, friendship love, and storge, that sentimental feeling, are brought together, they have this idea of being tenderly, warmly affectionate towards each other. Uh, There's a kind of loyalty and devotedness in this word. Frankly, this is the kind of love that dogs know very well. It's why dogs are such great pets, right? They have this just kind of loyal, tender affection towards their owners. It's why dogs are so much better than cats, in my humble opinion, right? Five times in the New Testament... Christians are called to greet each other with a holy kiss. There was nothing romantic about this kiss. 
This kiss was an accepted cultural way to communicate affection. To say to someone, you are dear to me. You're dear to me. Uh, Mount Hermon, are the people of this church dear to you? Do you have storge in you for the people of this body? Do you love them with a tender, brotherly affection? Think about brothers. Brotherly affection. Think about brothers. Brothers pick on each other. Brothers get mad at each other. Brothers don't always get along. But if someone else starts messing with one of them, the other will be right there, ready to protect. No matter what comes their way, they're united in a bond of brotherhood. I heard a pastor illustrate this using the popular television show Blue Bloods. I don't know how many of you have watched an episode of Blue Bloods. Uh, On that show, you have the grandfather. He's a retired New York City police commissioner. The father is the current police commissioner. One son's a detective. Another son's an officer. And the daughter is a district attorney. And so in every episode, they find themselves on different sides of an issue. Sometimes they're frustrated with each other. Sometimes they're angry with each other. At other times, they're going to each other for help or for counsel or for encouragement. But whether they're getting along or not, it's always clear that their relationships to one another are special. That there is a family love that binds them together. That there's a tender affection that comes through in the show. And whatever is happening in their lives, each Sunday they get together, go to church, and come home and have their Sunday family meal together. And it's a small picture of what God is calling us to. We are to be devoted to one another, committed to one another, loyal to one another, affectionate to one another, even when we're driving each other crazy. Even when we disagree on something. Even when we get frustrated because I see an issue this way and you see an issue that way. This familial, brotherly, phileo, storge love is to be there. We've talked before many times about Pastor John Fawcett and his wife leaving the people they had served for so long in that church. He had gotten the offer of a bigger church in London, and yet with the bags packed and the carriage loaded, they just couldn't leave. With tears in their eyes, they ordered for the bags to be unloaded. Their hearts were so united in love to these brothers and sisters in Christ that they just couldn't depart. We've had folks in our church that God has moved away from us. And for those of us who had joined our lives to theirs when they left, it felt like we lost an arm. It felt like we lost a leg. And that's exactly how it ought to be. It's exactly right, right? Many of us wept, but that's how it ought to be. We are to be dear to one another. Now, you might ask this question. Why does God command his local churches to be bodies of people filled with this brotherly affection towards one another? What's the point of this? How does this fit into God's plan for the world? And one answer is certainly this. When local churches are living out this command, they are a magnificent, powerful witness to the lost. 
Because how many people are there in the community around this church who need a family? How many people are there in Rocky Mount and the surrounding areas who frankly are desperate for any kind of affection they can get? They just want to belong somewhere. These are people that just they just want somebody to care about them. Tender, brotherly affection. It's missing from their lives. And we're to be a hub of that. We're to be a well that people can come to and drink and find that. When you are that person's neighbor, when you're that person's co-worker, and they hear you talking about your church family, or they see the way that your church family comes through for you in the midst of trial, it speaks to them. Especially, this isn't in my notes, but I'm just thinking about how different our culture is today than even 40 years ago, because people move so much. Jobs now take people far away. It's becoming less and less common for people to be in the same hometowns as their physical blood families. And so how important has it become for people to find others around them who really care about them, who have brotherly affection for them? The church of Jesus Christ can be a powerful witness when we come and we show that to folks. Our life together is a bonfire of witness shining in a dark world, showing the power of the gospel to transform selfish sinners into selfless saints. What we are learning to have in this passage is what so many around us in our culture desperately need. And so we ought to bring them here. We ought to seek to bring them into what we have. The Trinity is a community of love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And in Jesus Christ, you've been brought into that love. In Jesus Christ, God has said, we have this great love within the Godhead and we've, we've made a place for you. Come, enjoy the love that we have. In the same way, we now ought to look to the world around us and say, come, enjoy the love that we have. Experience brotherly affection with us. Here's another important point. The tender affection that we experience is the tender affection of Jesus for us coming through one another. In other words, Christ loves me as you love me. And Christ loves you as I love you. This is not the only way Christ shows his love. Christ shows his love to you in a thousand other ways. Christ is loving you this moment by putting air in your lungs and keeping your heart beating. Christ is loving you by providing food and clothing and shelter for you. Christ is loving you by continuing to sustain your existence. And and he's loving you through a thousand graces in your life. But among them all, this one is huge. Christ causes you to know his love for you through the gift of your fellow church members. When Christ, by his spirit causes a church to abound in tender love towards one another, he's placing his own tender affection for those believers into their hearts. In other words, he really is the head and we really are the body, the arms and the legs. It's his love first that moves the arms and the legs to love. And so when we love each other with this phileo storge love, 
It is first and foremost the love of Christ coming into us and being expressed through us. So when you are sick and a church member brings you a meal, that's Christ loving. When you are hurting and a church member is praying for you, that is Christ loving. When your pastors feed your soul through preaching, that's Christ loving you. When your deacons seek to care for you, it's Christ loving you. When your brothers and sisters offer encouragement to you, and when you see that they genuinely rejoice with you or weep with you, that's Christ loving you. Uh, Billy Graham famously told the story of a mother during World War II who would take her son into her bedroom each day and show him the portrait of his father. The boy's dad was off fighting at war. He was fighting for the country. But this mother wanted to make sure that her son knew who his dad was. And so she would bring him each day into the bedroom and have him look for a moment at the portrait. And One day the boy said, Mother, wouldn't it be wonderful if he could come right out of that portrait and be with us now? Well, in some ways, that is what the local church is to be in this world. The Bible paints us a picture of Christ's love. We learn about Christ's love through its teaching. But it is the local church that is to be a living embodiment of the love of Jesus Christ. The local church is to be the love of Christ springing out of the pages of the Bible into everyday life. We are to be the love of Jesus in four dimensions of everyday life experience so we have this command love one another with brotherly affection how do we obey it they give you three practical points to help us here we go number one first tender brotherly affection must be cultivated in light of spiritual realities i'll say that again tender brotherly affection must be cultivated in light of spiritual realities. What do I mean by that? I mean simply this. Truth affects how you feel. Truth changes our emotions. Think about the Star Wars movies. Empire Strikes Back. Darth Vader tells Luke, I am your father. That information changed everything. Up to that point, the whole goal was to destroy Darth Vader. Now, in Return of the Jedi, the next movie, the whole plot is about redeeming Darth Vader, bringing Darth Vader back to the good side. Why? Finding out that someone is family changes the whole dynamic. Imagine you see somebody in the parking lot at Walmart, and they're begging for money. And you might have compassion on that person and give them a few dollars. You might be cynical or possibly realistic about, hey, maybe they're ripping people off and you don't do anything. But once you've left that parking lot, you probably don't give that beggar another thought. But what if you're in that parking lot and you get a phone call and you find out that the person that you're watching beg for money is your brother? Well, Suddenly that changes everything. You didn't even know you had this brother. and Here he is and he's, he's a part of your family. Finding out that someone is family changes the dynamic. There was a story at the end of 2017 about two guys in Hawaii 
who had been best friends for 60 years. They had met in sixth grade. They had played on the same high school football team together, and they had just remained close friends throughout their lives, partly because both of them had been adopted and they didn't actually know who their biological parents were. Without knowing it, both of these fellows were researching their ancestries through Ancestry.com. Both of them got a DNA test done. And when the second one got his results back, it alerted him that there was another user with similar results. And it turns out these two guys who had been best friends for 60 years were brothers. And they had never had any idea. Uh, One of them said, it's the best Christmas present I've ever received. He said, it'll take me months to get over this feeling. Why? They were already friends. They were already really good friends. But these kinds of truths affect our feelings. Mount Hermon, if you want to develop more tender, brotherly love towards your Christians in this room, let this truth fall on you. We are brothers and sisters. We are family. We are more brothers and sisters than our blood brothers and sisters. And we will, remain blood, we will remain brothers and sisters in eternity when all blood relationships have come to an end. The spiritual DNA test has been taken and the results are in. The same Holy Spirit that's in you is in me. The same Jesus I call my Savior is your Savior as well. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, we are one body with one spirit called to one hope by one Lord with one faith and one baptism with one God and Father of us all. What's the emphasis? One. We are one. We have the same father, God himself. We have the same elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes us family, which means the people in this room are your family. Know that in your head. Know it in your heart. And let that shape your emotions. Let that steer your emotions. Second, tender brotherly affection must be cultivated through intentional prayer, time together, conversations, and shared experiences. I just put all those together, and I'm not going to say a whole lot about them because we talked about them in our study of love in verse 9. So really, I'm just giving them to you now as a reminder. The very fact that God gives this to you as a command means that you can't sit back and wait for this to happen. You have to be intentional about cultivating tender affection. It it must be something at the front of your heart and mind. It must matter to you. If there are people in this church that you don't know very well, and truthfully they're not very dear to you, that should bother you tremendously. It should concern you. That's not the kind of life we've been called to experience together. And so you should make it an an, an intentional thing. I am going to do whatever it takes to make so-and-so dear to me. In a larger church, this would be even more difficult, wouldn't it? This is something that larger churches have to wrestle with all the time. It would be impossible 
for you to truly know all the church members and to love them with even a, a beginning of a depth of, of tender affection in the same way. In fact, one issue that larger churches must, must wrestle through is that their members are tempted to only really get to know the people who are like themselves. They tend to, to, to move to people who are like themselves. And so in a larger church where you can't really know everyone, cliques begin to form around certain age groups and certain seasons of life and, and certain particular interests. And pastors of large churches have to think through, how do we help our members Engage with people who are older than them and younger than them and from different walks of life than them. And it's, it's a challenge. We're in a different place, Mount Hermon. Um, we're a large church compared to many churches in the world, especially overseas. But compared to many churches in America, we're a smaller church. That means you really can know at least the vast majority of our members in such a way that they can be dear to you. Our senior adults can be dear to you. And our children can be dear to you. Our teens, our college students can be dear to you. We can be dear to one another. But it must be intentional. It requires thoughtful effort on your part and my part. It's already happening to a degree, of course, but we can do better. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ enough to do this? Because it's his command here. Do you trust that Jesus knows what is best for you? If you trust him, then take this command to heart. Know that he has your best interest at heart. And therefore say, all right, I'm going to make this a priority. I am going to pray for closer, dearer relationships. We should actively spend time together, both in regular church meetings, but also outside of those as God gives us opportunity. And we talked before about the, the value of shared experiences. Shared experiences are huge. They have a way of binding people together. Shared experiences mean we have common memories we can look on together. Yesterday, Chris and I were in the van. We passed a place, and it, it just reminded me of when we were in Arizona. And I was like, remember that place? We, and we just looked at each other. We laughed. My parents were in the, the backseat. I realized they have no idea what we're talking about. But there was this, this shared experience that united our hearts. We as a church, we have to learn how to embrace shared experiences. Go serve at the children's home together and let that bond you through experiences. Go get involved in this book sale that we're doing and let's put that together and have shared experiences. One day we'll look back on them. Many of us already, we look back and talk about, remember when we did the $2 chicken plates and remember the things that happened, we were doing the live nativities and right, we, but these things that we did together that bound our hearts together, even as we served side by side. Well, third, sparse attendance, fear of man, social cliques and a critical spirit are enemies of tender, brotherly affection in a local church. So these are not the only enemies, but these are four main ones. I'll just say a word about each one. So first, sparse attendance. That one's obvious. If you're seldom at church, if you're seldom involved in our care group or our prayer meetings or our Sunday school classes, of course you're going to struggle to develop brotherly affection for the saints because they're strangers to you. 
we're to love everyone, we're to love strangers, but it, it is particularly difficult to have brotherly affection, phileo storge, for strangers. We're called here to know each other, and that means being together. When you plan your vacations and your family reunions and other activities, do you make every effort not to interrupt your attendance at church? Or are you quick to let that fall by the wayside? We must be careful to maintain our time together. Our time together already in this busy world with hectic lifestyles. It's too little. We need to make it a priority so that God can bind our hearts together in this love. Uh, The second I mentioned was fear of man. Fear of man keeps so many Christians from wonderful relationships that are right there available to them. We're tempted to say, well, I'm just a little shy. Approaching people is awkward for me. Or we might say, you know, I just never really know how to relate to that person. We're so different. I just just don't know what words to use. But at the end of the day, God has called us to pursue relationships with one another. Should shyness or awkwardness keep us from obedience? In reality, most of us struggle to some degree with fear of man. We worry about what other people think. We fear that we're going to embarrass ourselves by saying something foolish. But friends, the only opinion that ultimately matters is God's opinion. And on this matter, he's been very clear. Do not allow fear of man to keep you from approaching one another. Do not allow fear of awkwardness or shy moments keep you from inviting one another to lunch. Being in each other's homes during the week, grabbing a taco at El Himador, visiting a shut-in from our church. Look for ways to bond with people in this church who have been difficult for you to bond with. Do this for Christ's sake, because it's his opinion that that, that matters most to you, and you want to please your Lord, and he's given you this command. He's called you to this obedience, and you know what? Sometimes obedience, it can be hard. As you step it out of obedience, though, he blesses. How many relationships start in an awkward way and end up becoming wonderful relationships? Well, I mentioned social cliques are an enemy of brotherly affection. Uh, We just touched on that earlier. We're, We're too prone. This is just human nature, I think. We're prone to put ourselves in a box where we're surrounded by the people who make us feel the most comfortable. And we isolate ourselves to groups of people who we already have strong relationships with. And so by doing this, we miss out on many wonderful relationships with especially Christians who are older than us, younger than us, or have a very different life than our own. Think about the wisdom we can receive from older Christians. Think about the energy <laughs> we can receive from younger Christians, right? And the, 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 the kick, the, the, the new zeal that we need to recover Christians who have different interests can often help us see things from a new perspective and help us grow in our understanding of God's truth. So I mentioned we're not having church Wednesday night, July 4th. Have a cookout. Invite people to your home and invite the people of our church that you would typically be least likely to invite. Invite the ones that are are, are not the most common folks to be at your house. Or maybe if if it helps you feel comfortable, a mixture, right? A mixture. Some of the folks you feel most comfortable with and a few folks that have been a little bit harder for you to get to know. 
But let's find ways to avoid clicks and to pursue this. Well, I mentioned also critical spirit. A critical spirit is an enemy of brotherly affection. The opposite of a tender heart is a hardened heart. A critical spirit causes us to judge others, look down upon them, and it makes it difficult for us to feel brotherly affection. Compassion, tenderness, dearness, these are flowers that get choked to death by the weeds of criticism and judgmentalism. If you're going to have a tender brotherly affection for the people in this room, you simply must put away the critical spirit. It has to happen. We know we're in a room full of sinners, don't we? There's no surprise there. But the people that we're with, they're not just sinners. We're believers on Jesus. We're forgiven sinners. We're blood-bought sinners. And the person that we're prone to look down upon was loved by Jesus so much that he shed his blood for them. If Christ placed such a high value upon that person, who are we to do otherwise? Who are we to treat them as unimportant or not worthy of our time? I should see myself as the chief of sinners, for I know my own sin. I know more of my own horrendousness than anybody else. And so in humility, I should be ready to accept and love my brother and sister despite their sins. If I know how vile I've been, if I know how much I've been forgiven of, what in the world would cause me to look down on somebody else? In fact, through these relationships of love, we can help each other grow in holiness and Christlikeness. So Mount Hermon, here is our call. I've done my best to explain it, to show why it's important, to help us. May God give us the grace to obey. Let us love one another with brotherly affection. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.